I founded the entire program for the United States Navy counterespionage in the cyber world at the age of 21. It should have been somebody else, but apparently that person wasn't available, so I got to do it. Hi, I'm Duncan Pryor, digital transformation consultant and host of the Making Things Work podcast. I love looking for innovative and creative ways to make work better so that we can get the balance right in our lives and have seen how leadership and teams can accomplish that. In this podcast series, we meet a group of executive leaders to understand what leadership means to them and their approach to delivering transformation and change in the workplace so that teams achieve great things and people see their careers flourish. Today, we're talking to Brian Hurd, a seasoned cybercrime computer security and homeland security professional with over 20 years of founding programs that makes the lives of people across the globe better. He applies strategic expertise to solving overwhelmingly complex problems that have a lasting positive impact on the lives of others. Welcome, Brian. Well, thank you, Duncan. What values have you taken from your time in the US military into your subsequent leadership roles outside the military? It's been an interesting transition over the years because I've been in and out of military service. I started out founding the Navy's cyber counterintelligence program at the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, what many of you now know as a television show called NCIS. I was a uniformed military officer, then worked in the government as a civilian, worked around the government as a contractor, and now help commercial companies all over the globe. And I think that one of the leadership traits that has come into favor lately, but was known to many Colin Powell and other thought leaders inside the military, was being a servant leader. One of the sayings I was taught when I worked uh, in my Navy time with the Marine Corps and deployed with them on several occasions was the squad leader eats last. Physically, the squad leader of a troop out in battle will be the last one in the chow line. And I think yep. that that type of understanding that your team has to be taken care of first is a critical thing that then drives hundreds of decisions and actions of a leader in the military, government, or commercial sectors. But that thought process is the overriding component that allows you to align a bunch of actions following. So it's not something that most of us who are outside of the military might necessarily think of, that a leader in the military will be this or servant leader. It's an interesting dichotomy in the military service to be responsible for your troops whether they're on duty or off, whether they're at work or not. You're responsible not only for what they do in terms of your mission, uh, especially for the junior troops, and I had to deal with this even when I was a junior officer, I was responsible to help them with their finances, deal with relationship issues that impacted them, even if it didn't impact the mission, and be a steward of that relationship and help that person 24-7, 365. The commercial sector is a little bit different in that regard, that when the work day is done, a lot of people don't feel they have to watch out for the staff. Uh, some do. There are great leaders that abound in every environment. But it is an interesting level of responsibility that informs or taints, depending on how you look at it, your leadership from that day forward. What's your take on the current status of a, what you might call a transition towards the servant leader mindset across the globe? I welcome it, and I welcome, as each of us do in our fields, we welcome the opportunity to continually improve 
to be mentored by those we respect, and maybe once in a while, share some insights or at least battle scars with those coming into the profession or working their way up as well. I've worked with boards of directors. Often uh, I work at a company called the Aon Cyber Solutions, part of the Aon Insurance Group. We do breaches and cyber breaches and help respond to attacks for corporations around the world. And I've seen some of the largest corporate executive teams faced with what is probably the worst day and or week or month of their career facing a massive breach. And I've seen some examples of incredible leadership. Uh, One individual, the first thing they made sure to do for their teams working 19-hour days was to cater in food. And it was uh, one of the few times in a breach I had seen an executive think about that in a way to not only physically feed the team, but to, in a minimal way, boost morale during a firefight or during a very stressful period. And they did a bunch of other things as well. But I've seen in a true crisis, leaders are differentiated by those that bring water to the fire and those that bring gasoline is an old saying. And I think uh, the increasing focus on refining our craft of leadership, on being a team in more situations and being a servant leader is playing out in many boardrooms and I'm glad to see. Yes, it's very interesting. When there's been a security breach and you come in, you're really the only option for all the participants and the stakeholders involved. Is there a level of openness about what happened so that you can work your way through it? It's quite a cathartic process, I expect, that many people go through. And with the right level of leadership, then everyone comes out of it stronger. Very much so. I think in those situations, when you're testing the metal of a group and they're unfortunately faced with those types of decisions, it is an indicator of where they're going to go. Because one of the things is you go to where you're trained. So if you're trained to be a team and you're trained to be a servant leader, in crisis, you will go to your core training. If for some reason your craft has been honed by self-serving, it will probably come out more in a time of crisis than less. I'd say on other situations where you work proactively with clients when the breach hasn't happened yet, but to help them prepare for such a situation. One of the things in every situation is preparing for those types of situations. You have to practice uh, your fire drills, your breach response. And I run a lot of those exercises for Fortune 100 companies and am often impressed with, in a recent one, the leader turned and said, I've learned a lot of things I didn't know during this. I'd like to focus more money and time and attention and my leadership support on trying to avoid this ever happening if possible, but knowing that we're prepared should it. And I thought that was amazingly understanding of that leader to give the people in that room the ability to portray reality up. And then that not only leadership saw that, but then responded in the right way to be proactive and supportive in reallocating budget, time, and energy. So then the value of those exercises, playing out those scenarios as value far and beyond the, the, the specifics of the risk actually taking place, the overall way that the team comes together and the leadership comes to the fore really makes the whole organization perform more effectively, I guess. Absolutely. And at the level where you and I are talking today about high-functioning organizations and the difference between a a team that's going to 
do well fighting a fire, whether that fire is a fraud, a, a legal case, or a cyber attack or a ransomware, is not only that they've practiced, but that they understand how to trust each other and know their roles in a crisis. And not just the function of it, that they also understand that there's a mutual respect and an appreciation that that person needs to do that role where there's ambiguity. They won't always have the answer for the CEO in that moment, in that room. And there's reasons they won't. Either it's not available yet, or time and energy hasn't been spent to make that answer available. And it was a, a, a true differentiator in understanding the difference between the desire of sometimes senior leaders for hourly updates on a crisis when that in itself would slow the crisis down. And it takes a lot of uh, discipline and a great deal of trust to adjust that. Your desire to know what's going on and your trust in your team to be doing the right thing between updates. When you're working with organizations to help build that experience by working through these scenarios, can you give us some insights into how you start engaging with leadership teams in a situation, for example, where they maybe they're lacking some of that awareness? Absolutely. I've been honored to work with some of the world's greatest teams inside and outside the government. Uh, I've had a bunch of dream jobs throughout my career, so I've, I've been lucky to, uh, to be in some of the hallowed halls. I think yeah. one of the first things about a tabletop exercise or a cyber threat simulation or things like that even the terrorism drills I ran when I was running the U.S. Washington system. It starts with the group coming into the room with that construct and thinking what their role is. And then as you play through, hopefully what is a well-crafted scenario, and that's a lot harder than most people think to construct those, it plays out that people start making decisions or advising on decisions. Advising is always good or input's always good, but making decisions that are ultimately the decision of legal counsel or the CFO or the information security officer that they need to get other inputs from, but that person can't pull the trigger, so to speak. And or that that decision requires additional personnel that aren't actually on the team. And that's something that's often realized is that it's easy to make up a scenario and walk through it with the people in the room. It takes a true professional that's walked boards through this to know who should have been in the room or who will be in a real situation. And those kind of things go both to the crisis management role that I often do in breach response with Aon, but it also portrays to some of the work I did overseeing knowledge management within the uh, U.S. Intel community and the U.S. watchlisting system. It's establishing that common vision and finding those roles and the types of things that bring people to the table. And sometimes you might have to do something that's really not on your list because It's impeding the person you're trying to help to get something on their list. I've always remarked, if you walk into somebody's office and they have 10 things to do today and you're talking about number 11, you're not their friend. If you can help them accomplish one and two on their list, they might have room to put yours somewhere near the middle. And that's about the best you can ask for in in large organizations. But I found it quite effective. But I found myself sometimes working on somebody else's number one just to get it out of the way. Yeah, that's a great tip. We've often found working on transformation programs in more of a business as usual capacity, everyone understanding their roles and responsibilities can remove so much frustration and so many problems. Often the job title that you have 
automatically associates a certain set of roles and responsibilities, say, in your mind, but the other people working on the team won't necessarily share that view. So just really going through what it is and very specifically everyone should be doing and parking job titles can just massively accelerate team performance and get you through those various cycles of team development to a performing one very, very rapidly. The other thing about massive change management is you, myself, and others in the community have talked about again and again, is a lot of times, especially during this pandemic and even before, a lot of people are overworked and randomized by incoming emails and things like that. They don't have a lot of time in their day. One of the quick hits I often look for in any change management project is to bring efficiency to that person's day. Again, even if it's not on one of my top two items, if it's on one of their top two, because then what's called in the military a peace dividend from back in the old days. If I can free up an hour in somebody's day and ask for 15 minutes of it back for my project, that's a pretty good deal for everybody involved. And it stops a lot of times as a change manager, you having to fight with their priorities if you can help them save back time and ask for a percentage of it. And after the first couple times of doing that, they'll realize they want to work with you because you're going to bring efficiency into their life. And that's something that is something that pays dividends in the long run, which is ultimately what you want in a high functioning organization, building up that account of shared trust. Uh, be it for a huge change in how you do your core business or the response to a cyber breach or handling how a litigation works. Yeah, that's great advice. Just about that daily working through the change and building the engagement as you go through it. I'd like to talk about a specific period in your career, and that's on the subject of knowledge management and education. You were the Enterprise Knowledge Architecture and Innovation Lead for the Department of Defense Terrorism Center for a number of years. And in the context of digital transformation and making things work, could you talk a bit about this role? And it's interesting to us because this theme has come up on a number of occasions during this podcast series. Yes, absolutely. So I'll do the quick version of how I got there. Uh, At the very start of my career at NCIS, uh, one of my roles was to be the senior officer in the Navy for terrorism for 12 hours at a time in a terrorism watch center that NCIS runs, now called the MTAC the multi-threat analysis center. So I started my career in terrorism and then doing cyber as well back in the early 90s. Uh, Later in my career after running EDS's cyber computer forensics program, founding it and running it, and 9-11 attacks hit the US, I went back to the world of terrorism for about a decade and worked as the core knowledge architect for two US intel agencies and ultimately was selected in and recruited to be the chief of innovation for the entire U.S. watchlisting system, uh, what most people know is the no-fly list. Uh, however, there are a bunch of other lists. That's actually the smallest one. Uh, so I was in charge of all the identities in that database, fixing them, aligning the bits and pieces from all the Intel community uh, into records that could be scanned against. It was a, an amazing mission with thousands of people involved. I was honored to lead a team of about 150 with the goal of making the entire system better from start to finish, all the way from the reporters of all the intel agencies around the world and the military out in battlefields, all the way through the Central National Counterterrorism Center, and then out to all of the TSA and borders and airlines. It required an extreme amount of coordination 
and using those kind of tactics that I was talking about, where I went and found the biggest problem somebody had that were stealing hours from their day and causing them huge amounts of frustration. And if I could do something to get rid of parts or all of that, they'd be a lot more willing to do one or two things to help me optimize some other poor soul further up or down the supply chain of data. And I think when you start looking at your organization in that kind of internetworked way, where an efficiency in one unit could ultimately two or three projects later also realize efficiencies across four or five units, you can move your organization from siloed and unit thinking to truly higher functions. Uh, but it requires a great deal of belief, a great deal of ability to resist resistance in healthy ways and get people finally over to your side once in a while, and to think beyond yourself and sometimes sacrifice a little bit of your time and energy to solve somebody else's problems for a day or two or more. And I think that in that situation, even with everybody focused on mission, they also just focus on, you know, they're part of the machine. Seeing the whole machine and being able to fix things two or three agencies away and then figure out where the data flows and what data fields need to be somewhere was an amazingly complex problem. And I got to work with a great team to bring a lot of innovation to it. And we were extremely successful in innovating a lot of that system. Was it very interesting to pick up on your point about the silos? Was the breaking down of the silos a byproduct of all the work you were doing, or, or was it more intentional? Was that what you sort of had to do in order to bring about the innovation, or was it a bit of both? A, a bit of both. However, I was not the leader of the organization I was changing. In fact, almost all the time, only recently in my career have I been the leader of the organization yeah. and probably the one that needs to be advised on change. The In my earlier career, from significantly what I would call, and even my boss is called, underpowered positions. I was able to work with teammates to have not only enterprise, but national and international impacts. Now, I must say, again, it was a team, team effort. And I also had some senior leaders that even if they weren't supportive, they would not allow me to be killed in the process, which in itself was a support. One boss at one point, uh, we had a crisis come up and uh, he came into my office and he goes, is that case management system you've been secretly designing against my will for two years ready to go? And I said, well, <laughs> yes, it is. And he goes, I'm not kidding. We're going to brief the president with it later today if we can. And I said, okay, it is ready to go. I've been you know, working this project for quite some time, among many others. And he goes, yeah, and I've been secretly resisting it, but that's going to change today. <laughs> so he gave me the supportive environment, but then at a certain point also emotionally invested after seeing finally what I was trying to do. And sometimes it just does take time and a non-ego, as hot as that sounds for me to be saying in a podcast where I'm talking about myself, which is uncomfortable. Yes. Um, you have to take your ego out of it. You have to do things above and beyond. And one of my favorite sayings is that there's no limit to what a person can do or where they can go if they don't mind who gets the credit. Right. And that's a, in a world that loves reality TV stars and credits the quarterback for the entire team's accomplishments, 
it's a hard role to play to try and play the team card. And I do understand the dichotomy of that. It's truly important to be seen as authentically trying to help at the end of the day. After all that, all the sort of blood, sweat and tears, there's a very clear moment where the help starts coming back your way. It was. And again, in the credit to that leader, and this was the day of the attack on the Boston Marathon in the United States when two terrorists uh, set off bombs at the uh, finish line of the U.S. Boston Marathon. They had been very supportive of hundreds and literally hundreds of innovation projects. But the case management one was something where it really wasn't seen about the benefit until the crisis came up that could be solved no other way. It led to an efficiency of what used to take weeks now took two hours for about five to 10 agencies all at the same time. It saved an insane amount of time. And I was ultimately given a, a lifetime achievement award in the, in the government. And so I won't, won't go into what it is, but it was quite an honor to receive and not be either dead or 80. It's yeah, terrific. Congratulations. Yeah, that must have been a real honor. I, again, uh, it was uh, more about uh, the team. I go to that as my standard because it's true. Uh, me standing around yelling at the ceiling in the office that things should be different would not have accomplished any of it. It took a great deal of, of time and trust and building those relationships over many years, understanding the core business, helping people, even when they seemed sometimes to not want it or not appreciate it the first two or three times, they would come around sooner or later. Authenticity will win out in the end of the day. This idea of enterprise knowledge architecture, what you're really talking about here as well is really putting the information and the tools in the hands of the people, enabling people to to do what they need to do because they've got the information right there and then. Agreed. And I think one of the struggles for change management in general, but knowledge engineering or whatever you want to yep. call it these days, uh, knowledge architecture or you know, MLAI systems, things like that, that are just tools within the craft, is that if you truly understand the business, many of its day-to-day -day decisions and day-to-day -day data manipulation are not done in the core databases. When you get to that realization, when you figure yes. out that a lot of times it's spreadsheets or Word documents or bins of files somewhere hidden inside the organization, you want to get as much analytic capability down to the individuals as possible. And you want to have that capability in the hands of those analysts to process that day-to-day -day data. We talked about the change management. Let's focus now on the innovative side of it and how you can build a culture that can really drive innovation to deliver success. That is one of the struggles. Any change management, you start out at the current state, there is an obvious drop in efficiency, the trough of disillusionment, as you may have yeah. heard it called in many of the studies. And then hopefully, that's where training really comes in, training the people how to use this new methodology, and then you get to a higher steady state. One good example from uh, many moons ago was a quick story about uh, the conference rooms in one of the places I worked, it doesn't matter where, were three notebooks. They were three ring binders with printed pages for each of the days. And if you wanted to have a meeting, you would go and put the meeting in the book to reserve the room. Now, this will sound funny to many people who just go onto their systems and reserve rooms. What's even funnier is, this was in a time period where that was a function of Microsoft. All you need to do was set up a mailbox for your conference room. 
and it could yeah. deconflict and do everything. But they had these books because nobody had looked into it. And uh, nobody in the admin staff kind of knew that was a function. So I, I told them they could, and they didn't really want to because they didn't understand how it would work and how they would be able to move meetings. And I explained that they would, and it would inform everybody. And then every once in a while, somebody would steal the book, unintentionally take the book to their desk to look at the book in their calendar at the same time. And then the book would be gone for a day. Uh, yeah. So they couldn't book a room at all. So finally, not dedicated time, like, you know, over a couple of weeks, I was talking to them about it and then finally went down to the IT division and set it all up and explained to them how to do it because they didn't know how to do it either. And then it was, you know, we did a couple of training sessions, uh, another one when everybody who was on vacation got back. And then there was this new capability. Nobody had to leave their desks. Everybody could deconflict. And it saved, you know, the organization as a whole of 300 people, I don't know, 20, 30 hours wasted a week of people walking around doing this stupid thing in five to 10 minute to 15 minute increments. Yeah. And that kind of peace dividend, uh, removing that friction, those small wins in change management can also win you a little bit of trust for a much larger project. Because you can call yeah. back to something that improved that person's day. Say, hey, remember that calendar thing? Wait till you see what I do to the database. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's look for those small wins. Look for things that help everybody have a 15 minute easier day. And then maybe, just maybe, they might invest in your next time saver and, and uh, innovation as well. It doesn't really matter where you are within the organization. You've talked about the successes you've had, but not necessarily as the boss sort of wearing the badge, if you like. And it's true to say, isn't it really, that wherever you are, you can bring that leadership to, to driving change and innovation in any way you can, wherever you sit. Yes, it is. And I think that goes back to the, uh, the core issues of authenticity and a focus on the mission or the business. Yeah. Uh, that brings with it, uh, sometimes at the lower level, but hopefully at the senior levels, a trust that you are doing it for the greater good. And, you know, the greater good can be the mission of your business. It doesn't always have to be, you know, stopping terrorists or helping companies through their worst day on a cyber breach. I've been lucky to have those jobs too. It can be in a nonprofit group. It can be in a charity. But if you're focused on that core mission and it's not about individual achievement, I think you can gain a lot of trust across the enterprise. Because of the situation we're in now where all organizations are going to have to go back to those sort of core principles and values and what they're really here for rather than just making money. That's not why organizations exist. I think now it's going to be moved up to the next level, I think, where it's going to be the core of everything, what the company does beyond just the P&L. I've been honored and lucky to have it almost entirely throughout my career is organizations in the military, in the U.S. government, and even in the commercial sector, where my job is to help others in various ways. Sometimes the mission was literally stopping terrorists from getting on any plane, anytime, anywhere. Other times at Microsoft or now at Aon, it is helping either avoid cybercrime or, if need be, respond to it. So I think that especially as the next generation of executives comes up through the ranks. They're looking for purpose and personal profit to a degree. Sometimes it's said as you can do good and do well. They're looking for more mission 
in their jobs. They're looking for jobs that align with their core beliefs and values. And I think almost in any organization that is possible to find, hopefully in a way that rings with not only the individual, but with a team of like-minded people that you know, want to do good things in the role they're at, for the team they're at, for the organization they've chosen to sacrifice their time to. So it is interesting to see a lot more of that in, you know, my generation, but even uh, in the newer generation coming up. Bringing all those themes together, what's the one thing that you would like everyone to take away from our conversation today? I think the core thing about some of these things on the security side is that it's in the hands of each individual to help the security architecture and to articulate to them what their real job is as opposed to just the requirements they give for the system's design. So talk about really what you do every day so they can design a security system that helps it. And I think for change in knowledge engineering, it's almost the same thing is if you find a change agent who is authentically trying to help, lean in and really tell them how it works. Let them understand how truly complex the decision-making is, the stickies, the spreadsheets, the lists that aren't in the database. And the first couple of times you do it, your requirements will get marked as low. And low means no most of the time. Uh, They just put it there to quiet you down. And then advocate for those and talk about if we do this, the mission will be better. The business will be more efficient. Use those metrics to bolster your discussion of things that can make your and others' lives better. It's a two-side equation. And whichever side you're on, it doesn't matter what your rank. I founded the entire program for the United States Navy counterespionage in the cyber world at the age of 21. It should have been somebody else, but apparently that person wasn't available, so I got to do it. Um, And that's my final call to action for wherever anyone is in their organization, whether it's IT security or cyber defense, or whether it's knowledge management or anywhere else, lead from where you are. Yeah, that's a great note to end. And uh, thanks very much for talking to us today, Brian. What's the best way of reaching out to you? Uh, Easiest one is probably LinkedIn. Yep. I'm listed there, Brian Hurd, and I'm currently at Aon and have previously been at Microsoft and NCIS. Those keywords on LinkedIn should pretty much get you to my profile. Okay, terrific. Thanks very much for joining us today, Brian. Thank you, sir. This podcast series is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studios, Oxford, UK.